we are, where we've come from, where we're going, and how we'll get there. Our culture promotes many different worldviews, but how do we know which one is true? Can they all be true? Let's start the conversation. Well, good morning, Fellowship Church. My name is Nick, and I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Fellowship Church. And if you're joining us here today, uh, we are about halfway through, uh, through a series called Gospel Conversations. And our goal is to create some space uh, in the, the sermon time to... Uh, uh, here's some of what God has done in some of the lives of our people here, and uh, specifically addressing some different worldviews uh, we've already covered so far in this series, New Ageism. Uh, last week, Pastor Mark talked about Islam, and today we're going to talk about Jehovah's Witness. And so uh, I'm really excited uh, to have my good friend Cindy here, and can we just quickly just welcome her to the stage here with us? And so we're really excited to have a conversation here. And for those who are joining us, this might seem a little bit different. Uh, the pastor sitting during the sermon time, don't worry. It's not for the whole thing. Don't, don't worry. Um, <laughs> but we're just going to have a conversation. We want to hear more of Cindy's story. And so, Cindy, could you start off by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Good morning, everyone. My name is Cindy Manzoni. Um, I was originally from Brooklyn, New York. We moved to Pennsylvania in my early elementary years. Um, we live on a farm now, a dairy farm, with my husband of 40 years. I have three children, Stephanie, Daniel, and Leanne, and I have four gorgeous grandchildren, Isabella, Danica, Zoe, and Chloe. <laughs> and I've been attending fellowship for 14 years. So you went from growing up in Brooklyn to now on a dairy farm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's a whole other story <laughs> I would love to hear more about um, at some point. So can you tell us a little bit more about your spiritual background growing up? Sure. So I grew up Catholic. Um, we always went to Sunday Mass. My parents most of the time stayed home, sent us five children. Um, we were very involved. I would walk to... Um, Stations of the Cross every Friday night. Um, when I was home, I would take my big Catholic Bible, it was a family Bible, and I would try to understand it. I've always had a heart for God. I would look up the words that I didn't understand, circle them, put a little number by them, and then look the definition up and put a little number to match the word, just trying to understand. My mom always said, you're going to be a nun someday. <laughs> but... Um, so yeah. th that's how I grew yeah. up. Wow. I just imagine you carrying your big Bible. I know, and, and it was really big. <laughs> yeah, yeah, getting in and the word and stuff. So that's really cool. Uh, and I love how um, in our conversations uh, you shared as well that you said, I just love God so much and you wanted to do what he wanted me to do. Right. And I think that's right. just such, an, uh, such a, a neat testimony, even as, as a kid growing up, to have that desire to right. read and study and go on Friday nights. So that's really neat. So that was kind of your background growing up, and at age 14, things changed. Mm -hmm. And could you share a little bit more with us um, what changed and uh, that experience for you? Sure. So um, my dad was outside working on his car one day, and two witnesses came up to him and started sharing their faith. Um, so my dad invited them into the house. They opened up their Bibles, talked about what they believe, and then being that we were Catholic, my dad had pointed out, or I'm, excuse me, the witnesses had pointed out some of the things that they were doing as Catholics that the Bible was against, such as idol worship, um, uh, praying to saints. Um, one of the big things for my parents, and I think it's because they were Catholic, and calling priests father, they pointed out, do not call anyone father but your father in heaven. So my dad and mom um, after that, they were all in. They got rid of all of their statues, and we stopped going to Catholic church. Um, they made an appointment with the priest, and they confronted him on these issues. And, um, and then they told him, take our name off the membership, and that was the end of that. And so we started going to Kingdom Hall. 
Yeah. And then so from there, um, you started doing some study with some of the leadership, I believe. Yes, yeah. yes. We, um, we studied with one of the elders. They don't have pastors or priests. It's all, it's elders. Mm-hmm. So um, we studied with the elders once a week, learning about all their uh, beliefs, their traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and so after that conversation, when they came to your door that day and your parents had this conversation with them, they were... I think you said all in, right? They were After all that, in, yep. they completely they started in. attending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. wow. And so, so after that, age 14, correct, when this all happened? So after that, can you tell us a little bit more about your experience at Kingdom Hall and what that was like for you specifically? Yeah, actually, I really liked it because we came from Catholic background. And when you go to church, I'm sure some of you have been Catholic, um, you go to church there, it's, it's, it's just you go to church, you sit down, you leave. I love that they had such a great sense of community. Um, you would go in and talk and, you know, hang out with people. Um, I, and I also loved that they opened up their Bible because we were never taught to open our Bibles, although I did at home, but I really didn't understand it. Um, so that was great. They opened up their Bibles, um, had fellowship. I, I really liked it. And can you tell us a little bit more about your interactions with the people at Kingdom Hall? What was the reception like for you starting to meet a number of these, um, you know, members? At oh, this? my goodness. They were very welcoming. They mm-hmm. were very, very welcoming. We lived in Wilkesbury at the time and on Center Street in the Heights. And my dad and mom had bought a house out in Shavertown. It, they didn't really even know us. And they just gathered together and just moved us all to Shavertown. Mm-hmm. Um, just very nice, loving people. And so after you started attending uh, the Kingdom Hall, uh, a couple months later, what did you start to do that really s- called you to step outside of your comfort oh, zone? Oh, goodness. Um, so I, well, they had on Sundays, they had these little skits that you would do before the actual sermon took place. Mm-hmm. So um, I would get up on stage and I was terrified do these little skits to get the sermon point across and then I started getting involved in the door to door um, evangelism witnessing and that was really difficult that was hard and then I think you mentioned about six months after you started attending what happened after that six months after that um, I became baptized as a Jehovah's Witness and um, so once you're baptized you're, you're kind of really expected to follow all of their rules, um, which they have quite a bit of rules. Mm-hmm. And you were expected to not mess up. Um, there was no grace by any means mm-hmm. as a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah, and one of the things that she shared in our conversation as well was that you said we were made to feel like we couldn't make mistakes, right. like we had to be perfect. Right. Is that accurate? Right, mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, so you were involved at Kingdom Hall for about how many years? Four, four years. Four years. Okay. And so after four years, you stopped attending Kingdom Hall. And could you share a little bit more with us what happened that led you to stop attending okay. Kingdom Hall? Um, so when you're at, when you're Jehovah's Witnesses, you're, you're kind of made to feel like you have to do everything that's right. My parents were smokers for many, many years. And... Um, Jehovah's Witnesses really, really look down on that. That's something that you don't do. So um, I felt obligated that I had to reveal to the elders that my parents were smoking. I felt like they were sinning, and if I did not tell, then I was sinning too because I knew. So I, I went and I shared with the elders what was going on, and immediately they took steps to disfellowship my parents. So once that happens, you're just kind of, you're gone. You're out of the church. Um, if anybody sees you in public, they are not allowed to talk with you, not allowed to associate with you. So that, that's how we left. We left there. After that, my parents never wanted to go back, obviously. And so you were essentially trying to follow what the leadership was telling right. you to do. And as you were starting to learn these beliefs and seeing what your parents were doing, you felt like, well, I want to please God. So I need to tell them about what they yes, were doing. Right. And so then those events led them up to being disfellowshipped. And can you say a little bit more about what, what it's like to be disfellowshipped or what is that, what all happens in that process? So after you were disfellowshipped. I, honestly, I don't, I don't remember the whole process of what they have done. I do remember that it was rather quick, mm. that they were put out 
And obviously, if my parents weren't going, they wouldn't let us go. Um, I was a little bit upset about that because I liked it there. I also was upset because I did not realize the, um, uh, the extent of what would happen once I did speak about it to the, to the elders. And um, I don't, it was just heart-wrenching because you, you had friends there and they wouldn't even speak with you. They weren't allowed to. That's tough. So, so based on your experience and your time at Kingdom Hall, how would you describe a Jehovah's Witness and what they believe, again, based off of your experience and interactions at that age? How would you describe who they are and maybe a little bit more what they believe or what you were taught? Okay. So um, they, they believe that Jesus is created by God. He is lower than God. They believe, I, I know that some of their, their beliefs have changed over the years. At the time, I'm not sure if they still believe this, but they said that Jesus was Michael the Archangel. Once he was risen from the dead, he became Michael the Archangel. Um, they believe that the Holy Spirit was God's active force. He wasn't part of the Godhead. He was God's power in action. Um, they did not celebrate holidays, Christmas, um, Easter, Valentine's Day, any of the holidays, not birthdays. And they said that was because of all of origin background, backgrounds that were, pa- excuse me, pagan origins. Um, so none of that was allowed. You weren't allowed to celebrate any of that. Um, no voting, no pledging to the flag, which was really awkward because I was in high school at that time. And at that time, we did pledge to the flag. Um, no military. Yeah, and do you remember them talking about who Jesus is and what he was and like even what salvation looked like? Did you remember anything about what they believed about Jesus well, specifically? Jesus was, like I said, he was lower than God. He was a prophet. Mm. Um, they, they did commemorate his death. I, I think that was the only holiday they celebrated. Um, so it was really weird because we would go into this meeting and they would have a group of people on one side and then a group of people on the other side. The people that were on the other side were the 144,000, part of the 144,000. And they were the only ones that could receive God's spirit. Like nobody else was able to have God's spirit, um, just part of that group. So, so they went to heaven, but the people that did not have God's spirit did not. You were going, once you died, if you lived up to their standards, um, you would live on God's new earth that he created. And, and you mentioned the door-to-door witnessing. Was that something that was optional for you or is that required? No, that by? you had to do. Okay. You had to do, they had their, their little paper. You would have to sign when you went in. Mm-hmm. You put in so many hours a week. Mm-hmm. So that was... And so based on some of the things that you shared, correct me if I'm wrong, some of those points where there was not a lot of focus on Jesus, it was always more so on Jehovah. Yes, it was. Right? Mostly on Jehovah. Yes. Um, and, you, and you had mentioned in our conversations as well that you didn't really talk about salvation or what that looked like a whole lot to your knowledge. In no, the- I can't. I don't remember them talking a lot about mm-hmm. Jesus and there, salvation. There was a denial of the Trinity, the Holy yes, Spirit. Yes, they, they did not believe in the Trinity. An active force. Yes. And the, mm-hmm. the, the door-to-door witnessing yes. as well. Was that nerve-wracking? That was very nerve-wracking. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yes. People could be mean. They would, they would be mean. Mm. Wow. They don't want to talk to Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. Wow. So what events led you to eventually placing your faith in Christ? So this all kind of happened on your later teen years. And yeah, then so, so years when I was later, 17, 18, 18 years old, I would say. So um, after we left there, um, my parents tried to find another church. They, they went to Pentecostal meetings. They went to Seventh-day Adventist. And, and I do believe there was a couple in between. I just can't recall right now. But um, so... I didn't like any of that. So years went by. Um, I became pregnant with my daughter, and that was in 1991, and that was when the Gulf War started. Um, I was really terrified because I have read the Bible, and I knew of end-time events, and I knew that things were supposed to take place in the Middle East, so I thought that it was the Great Tribulation, and I just really, 
I was scared, so I would I opened up my Bible. I was on bed rest. I had some problems with my pregnancy, um, so. I, my husband would come home, and I would have my Bible open, my concordance, my Bible dictionary, just trying to figure it all out. And then I, I really felt like I needed to go to church. So my brother belonged to this church, so he invited me to come. But the, the, the pastor wanted to come to my home and speak to me. And so um, he did, and he talked about Christ, and he opened up to um, Acts 2.23, and he talked about well, what it says in there. It's, it's Peter's sermon to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. And the scripture talked about you killed and crucified Christ. And this pastor made it really personal. And it just crushed me. It broke my heart when he said, you killed and crucified Christ. So that was it. I mean, then he talked about, you know, Christ, what he did for us. And after that, I just gave my life to Christ. And that was it. Started going to church. and Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That's incredible. And so in light of your experience with Jehovah's Witness, what seems to be the most appealing aspect of this worldview that seems to draw people in, again, based on your experience, what seems to draw them into this worldview? I feel like it's the community because they were really... It was a great, great sense of community. Mm. And for me, it was also opening up their Bible because I was Catholic. You were never taught to open up your Bible. You just went to church. You listened to the homily. And, you know, so that really appealed to me. So it was the, the community aspect as well as actually opening the Bible and kind of reading it more on your own was, right. was very a distinct mm-hmm. thing for you. And so uh, you talked a little bit about your experience leaving the Jehovah's Witness um, worldview. For those that leave Jehovah's Witness, what are some common reasons people would leave based on your experience as well as maybe other experiences that you've heard of? Why do people end up leaving or who do leave? I don't know. Um, Well, I, I think I would say that the rules, you know, no grace. Have to follow the rules. You have to do what they say. Um... I think that would be the biggest thing. Yeah. So the, the rules, and you talked a little bit about reading the Bible mm-hmm. um, as well. I think that if somebody that was going to Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their own, their own Bible. It's called New World Translation. And they have definitely altered it to say what they wanted to say. There's one scripture in particular that sticks out to me. Um, it's John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Jehovah's Witnesses in their Bible, they stick a little A-God in there just to change the whole context, saying that Jesus is not God, he is A-God. I think that if you compare their Bible to, you know, the ESV or the NIV, you would see the major differences, and then I think that would be enough to make you want to leave because you'd realize it's not accurate. So the, the rules, their interpretation of the Bible, as well as even being disfellowshipped if you don't yes. follow up yes. to those rules or standards. And, and, even, and I think you had mentioned before, once you were disfellowshipped, there was a sense of you were essentially shunned, right? Shunned. Or there was no Absolutely. interaction? Absolutely. Shunned. Yeah. Yes. Wow. wow. And so, Cindy, we really appreciate you coming up and sharing today. And before we wrap up this part... Um, could you give us a little um, insight, thoughts, encouragement on how we respond to Jehovah's Witness when we interact with them based on your experience and your testimony? Uh, what are some things that you would recommend we do when we interact with them? Um, it's, really, it's really scary when you're going door to door, knocking on these doors, not knowing who's behind it. I think that's really difficult to do. And it's especially difficult when people are being unkind and they're slamming the door in your face. I I just think that we need to look at it kind of as a mission field. When they knock on your door, don't slam the door in their face. Um, Don't be unkind. Give them God's truth, the truth of God's word, and, and not point out, you know, you don't believe in Jesus and just some of the things that, that they believe, I, I think that just point out what God truly says um, with kindness and respect. 
and it may not even be the door-to-door because you actually receive, oh, you yeah. wanna share a little bit about that? Yeah, it's so funny because this, you know, we're coming up here to do this and I received a letter this week from Jehovah's Witnesses and I think Pastor Carl did and then I was talking to a couple ladies mm-hmm. in the hall and yeah. they did as well, so some people did. Yeah. So yeah. even if even if they're maybe not going door-to-door or changing their strategies, some of you may have received letters and even you this week received a letter. Yes. So, so even if you receive a letter, what, what, what would be some things that you could do even to respond in that um, way? I think respond in kindness and love and the truth of God's word again. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Well, Cindy, thank you so much for taking the time to come on stage and share this with us. It's nerve-wracking being up here. So could we just appreciate Cindy very much? So thank you. Thank you. I think one of the amazing parts of this series so far is uh, being able to hear stories from people in our church. And I would encourage you to uh, talk more with Cindy uh, even throughout the week and the weeks to come because we got to dig into her story a little bit, but just having some more time to to uh, listen to her story and some of her experiences. It's pretty amazing to see the ways in which God works uh, and how he's changed lives. So I really appreciate Cindy coming up here to, to share with us. Um, and yeah, I would definitely uh, ask you to give her some encouragement as well and ask her some more questions. I'm sure she would love to share more of her experience. And so, again, this series is a little bit unique and different, um, and we're taking time each week to have some conversations uh, with individuals in our church who um, have experienced different worldviews uh, and different contexts in their lives. And we want to start off by hearing from people and what they've experienced, and then in turn, being able to dig more into God's Word to see what the Bible says about that. And so uh, we're going to transition now into an abbreviated time uh, of teaching and to dig a little bit more into some of the things that Cindy shared with us um, this morning. So this is going to be a shortened time, and there's certainly, uh, we could spend a lot of time talking about a lot of these things. So I'm going to do my best to navigate through this, Um, but again, there's a lot that we won't be able to cover. But hopefully, again, this will be a starting point for each one of you um, to, again, start to have these gospel conversations. And that's why we really entitled it this way, because that's our hope and goal, is to use this as a platform to then move forward and have conversations with those who need Christ. And so in order to better understand some of Jehovah's Witness beliefs, I think it's important for us to understand the beginning and development of their worldview. So uh, I'm going to attempt to give you a five-minute history lesson on uh, how Jehovah's Witness uh, came into practice and moving forward through today. So I'm going to cover about 200 years in five minutes, so... Let's go. All right. Uh, I tried to create a helpful graphic as well, so hopefully that'll give you a little bit of a visual. So we're going to start in 1807. There was a Baptist pastor in Connecticut. His name was Henry Grew. And Henry Grew began developing this worldview or this interpretation called Scripture Interpreting Scripture. And his, uh, he would say that the Bible is its own best interpreter, right? And so we might hear and say, well, Scripture Interpreting Scripture, that's a good thing. But through his studies, he concluded that the doctrine of the Trinity is false, hell is not real, and he rejected immortality of the soul. And so as he began um, putting these findings together, he created pamphlets to which he began distributing to people in the community. And so as these pamphlets were being distributed, a man by the name of George Storrs, a Methodist minister, began uh, following some of Grew's findings. And then later on in 1842, uh, Storrs began publishing a magazine called The Bible Examiner. And so as these beliefs and practices began to continue to grow, more individuals began to follow along in these teachings, including a man by the name of Charles Taze Russell, or C.T. Russell. And Russell grew up believing in God But he severely questioned why God would allow for people to face eternal punishment. And Russell said, A God that would use his power to create human beings whom he foreknew and predestined should be eternally tormented. He can neither be loving or wise. And so 
these thoughts and others fueled his determination to find scriptural truth. That was his goal, was to find scriptural truth. What does the Bible say? And so years later, in 1869, Russell started a small group Bible study in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with a few of his acquaintances. And this Bible study that formed with C.T. Russell leading it, this Bible study formed in Pittsburgh was what would be now known today as Jehovah's Witness. So it actually began in Pittsburgh, in our very own state. And so this Bible study, when they would get together, they would discuss a topic, look in the Bible, and they would come to an agreement as a group, record that conclusion, and then begin to follow and practice it. And that was what their Bible study consisted of. And so a few years after that, Russell began traveling from city to city, preaching in places where people congregated. To the point then, in 1879, Russell began publishing a newspaper called The Watchtower, where he shared his findings and his spiritual thoughts. And so congregations of people who upheld his beliefs began popping up all over the place. And this group of people became known as the Bible Students. So then in 1881, Individuals desiring to share their faith began to go door to door to preach. And their mantra at that time was to spread the light. They began going door to door to spread the light. And so the light that they refer to is the present knowledge of the scriptures as revealed by Jehovah through their leaders. So when they said, we're going to share the light, spread the light, The light was their present understanding of what the Bible said that was affirmed and confirmed by their leaders. And then in the 1900s, Russell began taking his teaching and his publications worldwide until his death in 1914. But the movement continued pressing forward. And so after Russell's death, a man named Joseph Rutherford took the mantle leading this organization. And Rutherford began to publish more and more works that added on to what they believed. And some of his works were pretty controversial to the point where Russell and some of his seven closest associates were actually arrested in March of 1918 in Scranton, Pennsylvania, and it made national news and headlines. So Joseph Rutherford and his close associates uh, who were leading this organization at one point were actually arrested in Scranton, and one of his close associates actually was from Mahoopany. And so it's interesting to see how closely tied this worldview is actually to this area. And so from there, this society began a campaign called Advertise the King and His Kingdom. And so that's why today their places of worship are called Kingdom Hall and why they are known for this evangelism strategy of going door to door, which dates back to the early 1900s. And then years later in 1931, uh, Rutherford led this uh, movement to then officially change their name to Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, And that's how they are known today. And so I know that was a lot, but hopefully even through this little summary, you were able to identify some of the key beliefs and people um, that led up to uh, what they believe today and maybe already begin to make some connections with what Cindy shared this morning. And so with our remaining time, uh, I want to unpack some of these worldviews a little bit just to, to give us some insight into why they believe what they believe. So... The first thing is, what do Jehovah's Witnesses believe about God? Well, they believe that God's one true name, the name by which he must be identified, is Jehovah. They always refer to God as Jehovah and no other name, nothing different. And so, yes, the Bible does refer to God as Jehovah, but God is also mentioned as many other names, including Elohim, El Shaddai, Adonai, Lord of hosts, Yahweh. And in the New Testament, Jesus refers to God as Father, as well as the apostles. So they would only claim to call God Jehovah, and that is it. Whereas we see throughout the scriptures that God is named as a, a number of other names, which are listed as well. And so that's number one about who God is himself. Number two, 
what do Jehovah's Witness believe about who Jesus is and what he did? Well, they would teach that Jesus is the Son of God, um, and I spent a lot of time this week studying and looking throughout their website and their publications, um, and some of the slides I might have uh, referred to as the Son of God in quotations, because on their literature, they actually have Son of God in quotations. But what they mean by this is that Jesus was created by God. And so listen to how they describe who Jesus is. These are uh, quotes taken right from their website. Because Jesus was God's first creation and the only one created directly by him, the Bible teaches, uh, the Bible describes Jesus as the foremost son of God. Jesus was a spirit creature in heaven before he was born as a human on earth. God created Jesus before he created anything else. And so according to their beliefs and their worldview, Jesus is actually a well-crafted angel. Uh, And Cindy mentioned as well, they also believe that Jesus and Michael the archangel are the same entity. And they go on to say, Jesus never claimed to be on the same level as Almighty God, and even Paul did not believe that Jesus was Almighty God. And so Jehovah's Witness say that Jesus never claimed to be God, and because he never claimed to be God, therefore, he is not a part of the Trinity. But in fact, Jesus did claim to be God, and we see it in a number of instances throughout the Scripture. John 10.30 says, I and the Father are one. John 5.18, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that was one of the reasons why the religious leaders at that time were so angry at Christ because he was claiming to be God. It was one of the very things that led this movement to crucify him. And Paul himself says in Colossians 2.9, for in him, referring to Jesus, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so if Jehovah's Witness believe this of Christ, if this is who they believe Jesus to be, then the next question we have to ask ourselves is, well, why did Jesus come? Well, according to their worldview, Jesus came to teach the truth about God, to set an example in doing God's will, and to give his life as a ransom, to give his perfect life as a ransom. And again, at first glance, you might read over these and say, well, yeah, I I agree with those. But remember, words matter and definitions are vital because how we would define ransom and how they would define ransom are very different. And so listen to what Jehovah's Witness believe. The ransom had to have the same value as the life that Adam lost. Jehovah transferred Jesus from heaven to earth, and Jesus was born as a perfect human without sin. And part of their beliefs as well is they actually continue to go on and and they deny that Jesus died on a cross. And so the, the cross actually doesn't really have a lot of significance to them as a symbol as well. And so as we quickly move forward with this, Hopefully you start to see some distinctions forming. And here's why this is a big problem. Because if you change who Jesus is, then you change what he did for us. If you change who he is, that completely changes what he did for us. Because if if their worldview was true, a created angel died for us. And he was not Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so in this worldview, they believe that a created angel by God was transferred to earth to pay the ransom for us, where we sing and praise God, Emmanuel, God with us. So right here, the incarnation has already changed, which if that's changed, then everything else has changed. Because if Jesus was a created being and not the Son of God, then everything we believe 
falls apart. If Jesus was an angel and nothing more, then he isn't who he said he was. So how they view Jesus is a big problem because it's completely different from the Jesus in the scriptures. Completely different. Because if Jesus is an angel, well, the whole gospel has changed. So, in light of this already, what are the implications then regarding salvation according to the Jehovah's Witness? Well, when it comes to salvation, their copy of the scripture, which Sydney had mentioned, the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures, and their translation, this is what they write of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that everyone exercising faith in him might not be destroyed but have everlasting life. And so if you're familiar with this passage, you might notice a little bit of difference and distinction here. And so the first question when I read this is, what does it mean to exercise faith? What does it mean to exercise faith? Well, according to their worldview, it means to do what Jesus taught us to do. And so listen how they explain this. Uh, The Jehovah's Witness write, to gain salvation, you must exercise faith in Jesus and demonstrate that faith by obeying his commands. However, this does not mean that you can earn salvation. It is God's gift based on his undeserved kindness or grace. Can you lose out on salvation? Yes. Just as a person saved from drowning could fall or jump back into the water, a person who has been saved from sin but fails to keep exercising faith could lose out on salvation. And so they exercise faith in Jesus and demonstrate that by obeying his commands. So do you see the difference and distinction here? So they would agree that we do not earn our salvation. However, in order to be saved, you must exercise your faith to gain salvation. The exercising of the faith or obeying the commands and the rules, that's the seal of what Jesus did for us by following the commands. And so we would call that conditional. You can place your faith in Christ in this worldview But you must demonstrate that faith by following the the rules, the commands, um, you know, and and the door-to-door witnessing, uh, participating in the organization, all of these things. So even as we quickly unpack this, we see that the gospel is conditional. It's conditional. And some of these commands and rules are, and Cindy had talked a little bit about this, um, associating with their organization. And, and to be clear here, they consider themselves to be an organization. That's what they call themselves throughout all their publications. So I'm not just saying that. That's what they call themselves. They are an organization. So associating with their organization, there's the going out um, door-to-door witnessing evangelism and following a list of comprehensive rules who are, which are established by the governing body. And again, similar to what Cindy had shared, if you don't follow these rules, then you are disfellowshipped. You are shunned completely from their organization. And so they would agree that salvation requires faith in Jesus, but they add on that you must exercise your faith. Or in other words, Prove your faith. So yes, they believe in Jesus, but again, who Jesus is is very different, and they add on to that and prove your faith and exercise your faith. And so I want to show the distinction here again. John 3.16 in the ESV says that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And according to the New World Translation, again, their copy of the scriptures, John 3.16 Same verse says, so that everyone exercising faith in him might not be destroyed, but have everlasting life. And so, do you see how just a tiny word choice and understanding definitions creates very different implications? And so that's why we can hear some of this language and go, amen. 
But when you dig into who they define Jesus to be, then it changes what he did for us. Then it changes what we have to do. And it just continues on and on. And so we need to be aware of these distinctions because this worldview essentially equates Jesus as a cashier's check or a gift card. That Jesus was just a transaction, but it comes with fine print that is contingent on you holding up to your end of the deal. It's like if you ever go to those mall kiosks and they offer you a free gift, just sign here, but you know there's going to be fine print with it. And again, this is kind of the mindset here. And not only that, like we had mentioned earlier in our conversation, they also reject the belief of eternal punishment. They reject hell, which again changes what Jesus did for us. Because listen to what they write. We do not believe that the soul is immortal, that there is any basis in Scripture for saying that God tortures people in an everlasting hell. Therefore, when we die, we cease to exist. The dead can't think, act, or feel anything. A person who is fast asleep is unaware of what is happening around him. Likewise, the dead are not conscious of anything. Yet the Bible teaches that God can awaken the dead as if from sleep and give them life again. For those whom God resurrects, death is not the end of everything. And so this progression here continues so that if hell isn't real, well, I think, well, why do we need saving? Did Jesus really have to die if hell is not real? Well, why did Jesus talk about hell numerous times in Matthew 5 alone? And so again, I know I'm throwing a lot out at you, and I wish we could continue to go more in depth, but I want you to see here that at first glance, some of these beliefs on the surface look okay, but as you dig into definitions and their corresponding implications, do you see how easy it can be to become, as Colossians 2.8 says, captive by philosophy and empty deceit? according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The language is very similar, but the definitions and implications are very different. And so lastly, number four, what did Jehovah's Witness believe about how truth is understood or revelation? Well, to them, truth is revealed primarily through their copy of the Holy Scriptures. And they describe this translation as a translation of the Holy Scriptures made directly from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into modern-day English by a committee of anointed witnesses of Jehovah. And so this translation was produced by the New World Bible Translation Committee in 1947. So 1947 is when this committee of anointed Jehovah's Witness leaders came together to create this copy of their scripture. And this committee that formed this scripture, this committee was comprised by unnamed members who specifically wanted to remain anonymous. So as we track history, we actually don't have any names or information of those who formed this translation, which means we don't even really understand what their credentials were academically if they had them. They were just considered anointed witnesses of Jehovah who were uh, wanting to remain anonymous. And so one commentary says it much better than I could. The New World Bible Translation Committee went through the Bible and changed any scripture that did not agree with Jehovah's Witness theology. This is clearly demonstrated by the fact as new editions of the New World Translation were published, additional changes were made to the biblical text. As biblical Christians continued to point out the scriptures that clearly argued for the deity of Christ, for example, the Watchtower Society would publish new editions of the New World Translation with those scriptures changed. And so years following they would continue to update and change their transition, uh, the, the translation based off of their beliefs and understanding as they received new light that I mentioned a little bit earlier. And so this translation of the scriptures is a perversion, not a version of the Bible, because it was interpreted by anonymous leaders to conform to their theology, and it differs from every other English Bible translation that we have. And so, yes, they use the Bible a lot, and they study it, 
but it's their interpretation of the scriptures which affirms their beliefs. And so their beliefs influenced, influenced their translation, not the other way around. And we would call this a false hermeneutic because instead of adjusting their beliefs, they chose to adjust the Bible. And they also changed their theology and beliefs often because they receive new light from the governing body. So what they may have once believed um, could change, and they would call that old light. So as the governing body, the leaders, would study and gain new light, they would make adjustments and change their worldview, and they would consider that now old light. So it's about receiving the new light. And, and I find it ironic that they started out calling themselves Bible students, yet they continued to change what they believed in the years following, depending on who led their organization and as they discovered new truth. And again, I say all this uh, in the spirit of academia and staying um, faithful to God's word. And so I mean this in no tone of, of anger towards them, but to help us understand what they believe and why they believe it so that we can understand who Jesus really was and what he did for us. And so all of this and their mindset of developing truth really comes from this Gnosticism and that, again, they would affirm truth that it comes from Jehovah, then it would go through their governing body, and then it would continue on down to those in the local organizations. And so do you see how this progression happens of truth through leaders down to the, the other bodies, and it just continues to press down? And so I know there's so much more that we weren't able to cover this morning, but I hope you can begin to see why this worldview, Jehovah's Witness, and biblical Christianity do not align. They are incompatible. And while on the surface, the language sounds similar, there are very vast differences based on their definitions and their implications. Because here's the reality, 75% truth is not truth. It's a lie. 75% truth is not truth. If it's mostly true, that still means it's a lie. And we need to be aware of these worldviews so we can engage in gospel witness conversations. And again, we can see the similarities between what they believe and what we believe and what the Bible says. But what that points out to us is that, church, we must be discerning. Even slight differences are error. And as we discern truth, we must also not be fearful in engaging in these conversations because God desires for us to be gospel witnesses in our community, which includes Jehovah's Witness. They, like us, are in need of the biblical Jesus, fully God and fully man. They need Jesus just as much as I do. And I love what Paul says in Galatians 5. You were running the race so well. Who has held you back from following the truth? It certainly isn't from God. For he is the one who called you to freedom. This false teaching is a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. I am trusting the Lord to keep you from believing false teachings. God will judge that person, whoever he is, who has been confusing you. And church, Christ has called us to freedom, not contingent on us proving that and following these rules and different things. It's by grace you are saved, lest anyone should boast. And praise the Lord that God's grace is greater than my worst mistake or regret. God's grace is greater than my worst mistake and regret. And by the grace of God, I can't even be up here sharing his truth because of his saving grace. Because the gospel isn't just about making bad people good. It's about bringing the dead to life, to freedom. There is life in Christ. And that's why we praise him for who he is and what he did. Because it's not on us, but merely to place our faith and trust in what Jesus did. And so just because something is mostly true, that doesn't mean it is true. And church, my, my encouragement, my ask of you this morning is don't settle 
for half-truths. Don't settle for half-truths. Because on the surface, they use the same language we do, and they might hold to similar beliefs. But Jehovah's Witness believe in a completely different Jesus and a completely different Bible. And we want to unpack this here for you this morning so you can begin to understand how we can be gospel witnesses in our community. So if we receive a knock on our door or a letter in the mail, as Sydney said, we can be kind and respond to truth in love and share what Jesus has done for us. Because while they are very similar to biblical Christianity, there are vast differences that we must be aware of. There are vast differences. And church, let me conclude with this. 1 Thessalonians 5.21 says, Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Church, what you hear, what you see, what you read, test it with the scriptures. Because God will give you wisdom and clarity. Because it's God's word that is our foundation. That everything that we do is built on what Christ did and what he said. And it comes from his word. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity for us to dig into your word and understand these different worldviews. God, we seek to understand these worldviews so that we can lovingly engage in conversations to share the truth in love, to share with them how you, Jesus, have changed our lives. Our goal is not to be angry or belligerent or demeaning, but God, through understanding, we can more clearly appreciate what you have done for us. That in doing so, we can understand what you did on the cross, Lord Jesus, and what it means for me today that your grace is greater than anything I have ever done. And we praise you for that. And that is the grace that I place my faith in, that it's about what's already been done, not what I have to do day after day. And God, I pray that we would continue to look to you for wisdom and strength, and that in and through learning, we can have gospel conversations, not talking at in, in angry ways, but that we can engage with people in our community who are hurting, broken, and who need the love of Jesus just as we once have. And I pray that if anyone is here today and they begin to recognize their need for a Savior, I pray that they would place their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross because that is the saving work for God. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us through who Jesus is, Emmanuel. God with us. And to that, we proclaim all the days of our lives. And we give you the praise and honor and glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.